You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Shouldn't you be at work? And love. Oh, and love, he's got a real chance now. Peter and love. John Walk will take the penalty. Up goes Dion Dublin. He's got a few outside him. He doesn't need them. Oh, my word. Well, that is a goal worthy of an FA Cup final. That is absolutely incredible. And Robert Young writes his name across the FA Cup final. What a season he's having. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, no. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? It's Series 11, Episode 3. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And I blame you for the moonlit sky. It's Michael Marden. Hello. How are we all? Yeah, lovely. All good? All Very good. strong series, isn't it? Very strong series. Shout out to my friend who said that he can't get the... Uh, tune to um, England a Jolly D out of his head after listening to episode one. But I did see one tweet from someone who said that their son was like their, their kid was obsessed with that Hamilton song and actually he said he reckons he's responsible for most of their 1,000 plays on Spotify. Did you shred him in a song from Hamilton? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what the deal would be if we were to write a musical called Hamilton's and put it... <laughs> do you think we'd catch enough accidental traffic? I think we would. I think we'd also get a cease and desist from Lima Miranda. <laughs> oh, great. Not more legal trouble for the Hamiltons is all we yeah. need. <laughs> yeah, you just have Christine in that. Yeah, we can all see the Hamilton logo, so you just have, you just have a silhouette of Christine and Neil Hamilton. Would, it would be big gold Hamil- Hamilton and a really small S. <laughs> <laughs> but... Let's be honest, would you go and watch if they did a Hamilton's musical? I think I'd be tempted. Yes. 100%. You'd have Louis Theroux character in it, wouldn't you? Yeah, of course. And would would you think England are jolly good or whatever it's called? Do you think that's making the soundtrack? No, I don't think that's making the soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) Because you can't even name it. Um, (laughs) Let's get straight into the 90s o'clock news. Headquarters of ITN News at 10 with Chris Scull. Top story this week. I'm dressed in black for this week's 90s Clock News. Of course. Tributes come pouring in from the world of 90s football. Let's begin with Tony Cascarino. Uh, here's, here's the quote that I'm sure some of us have seen. Cascarino yep. said, I had a Chinese delivered just moments after the announcement. It felt wrong and very disrespectful to eat it. So as a mark of respect, I threw it in the bin. Lovely tribute there. Do you know my Do you know my main issue with Tony Cascarino's tribute there? Not, <laughs> I mean... That he's, he's not even English. <laughs> <laughs> 
another sign, another sign that he shouldn't have been playing for Ireland in the 90s. Um, is that who's getting a full Chinese delivered at 6.30 p.m.? That isn't early. That isn't early full Chinese, isn't it? Yeah. Because he's, he's probably ordered that before 6 p.m., that Chinese. The only time that's acceptable is a weekend, maybe, 6.30. Not on a weekday. Chinese to finish the working day. A weekday, 6.30 Chinese. At 6.30 on a Thursday. Imagine at 5.45 on a Thursday ordering a full Chinese. Well, ironically, I was in I was in Spain for the announcement, and I was actually in a Chinese restaurant when I found out the Queen had died. But I carried on and ate my Chinese, and that's probably why I won't get a knighthood. I respect your decision there. Did, was Tony Cascarino aware of the unfolding news story of the day, but he thought he'd take a risk on a Chinese in the hope the announcement wasn't made, even though most people were aware this announcement was coming? Yeah. Or did the announcement completely take him by surprise? But also... What takeaway meal does Tony Cascarino deem acceptable with that news? You know, is a curry okay? And Nando's? Like, what, what is he not throwing in the bin? Curry would be fine because they were formerly part of the British Empire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did Tony Cascarino... Has he been interviewed about this? Well, I've got bad news. Oh, no. It's not true. What? He never actually... Yeah, it's not true. It was all over social media, but in researching this, because I wanted to get the quote right... I discovered in my research that it didn't actually happen. It's a false news story. He never actually said he this. He didn't tweet it. It's a false tweet. Yeah, no. So he, <clears throat> the, the tweet that was popular said he said it on TalkSport. He didn't actually say it. Do you want to know what he actually oh, said? Oh, yeah, yeah, I was in Stratford yesterday when I found out I was getting set to celebrate my 60th this week, planning for a night out tomorrow night. WhatsApp group started, messages, and an amount of sadness from so many people. That's the actual Tony Cascarino quote. So there's no reference to it? No. Print the legend, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of newspapers printed it. Daily Mail, lots of other tabloids were right. printing this story. Sadly, not true. Not true. Never mind. Is but there any others? There's another tribute here, right? This one is true because I've seen it with my own eyes. Incredible tribute paid to the Queen by Ray Parler. I don't know if everyone's seen it. Have you seen it? If you haven't oh, yes. seen it, let me fill let me fill you in. So, um, Ray Parler paid tribute to the Queen. He says, uh, he begins it by saying, how is everyone? How do you, I hope you're having a great weekend. I had a great night last night. Good thanks thanks to all the guys who turned up. And then never references whatever this night was again. But he goes on to pay tribute to the passing of the Queen. He says, unbelievable lady. What a legend she is. I was gutted that the Arsenal team went to see her in 2007 and I had left the club. I would have loved to meet the Queen but didn't get the opportunity. And then the tribute goes from there to what what Ray describes as a, a cobra bomb. He says, what a lovely lady, so sad. We're going to miss her dearly, I promise you. So it's got to be a cobra bomb for the Queen. I'm sure she didn't drink cobra bombs. She had a little tipple somewhere along the line. I don't know what she usually drinks. But what a great lady she is. Good luck to King Charles III now. So all the best, Charles. Hopefully all goes well. I'm sure it will. And I'm sure he's going to be a great king going forward and pass on, passing it down to his sons down the end. It's interesting with this. It's like he's like being a pundit about it. Yeah, going forward's a real footballism, isn't <laughs> he it? Can't, he can't get out. He can't slip out of that kind of... Are we, are we overlooking the main detail of the video? That he does the Cobra Bomb? No, that he's in front of a Jamiroquai oh, piece yes. of Jamiroquai artwork. Where do you think he is for this video? Do you think he's in a pub it's shed? He's at home, of? isn't he? I mean, what could be more 90s than having your own piece of Jamiroquai artwork on the wall? <laughs> That's so good, isn't it? It's got like a marble countertop. It looks sensational. Yeah. Are we going to discuss Wayne Lineker's tribute? Which blew my mind. Yeah, Gary Lineker's Wayward Brothers tri- tribute. It's really hard with 
tributes like that to get the balance right between nation in morning and I've been on MDMA all day. <laughs> and somehow they pull it off. I think, not that, we're, not that they were, we should be clear, yeah. or that anyone in their club was. Yeah. It's, it's an astonishing video in which four scantily clad women dressed as um, beef eaters, not beef eaters. Um, Wayne Nicotelli describes them as beef eaters. And I have not. to say, the, the outfit has very little resemblance. If you went to the Tower of London and the beef yeah. eaters were dressed like that, I think you'd be asking questions. They've, they've got one of those big, tall black hats on, yeah. uh, but then bikinis. And where... My main question watching this, well, not my main, one of my, was where Wayne Lineker sourced these hats in Ibiza. Has he been, has he been waiting with these outfits? Because there's a kind of royal, a skimpy, also a royal jacket that they're wearing. Well, or, I have, being a sad follower of Wayne Lineker's Instagram, I'm aware that they do a kind of London-style show sometimes, so there's a big uh, red bus. right, okay. So, so they've, they've, they've improvised with stuff right, they already fair had. enough, fair enough. Is there any more tributes? You know, we're just the last. I just want to say, when Ray Parler ends his tribute, but as he is about to do the Cobra Bomb by saying, "Even if she doesn't like Cobra Bombs, I am sure she will be looking down, hopefully, and saying, thanks, Ray. Really appreciate that.' Amazing. <laughs> so here we go. And by the way, it's an absolute tribute that all the games record off the weekend for the Queen, and then he downs it. Great. Last mention for our, our, our footballers playing tribute to the passing of the Queen. We have to go to our mourner in chief, right? Paul Walsh. Oh, did Paul Walsh mourn? So, Paul Walsh didn't tweet about the Queen, but he did like a tweet that paid tribute to the Queen. Oh, that's good. He liked the tweet of Steve Norman. Steve Norman, of course, the founding member of Spandau Ballet. Oh, I didn't know that. Right, And Steve Norman had tweeted, morning, like, morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N, goodbye, mom, and a heartbreak emoji. Paul Walsh chucked that a like. So there we go. Oh, that's good. But for the completest, the Mourner in yeah. Chief Paul Walsh paying a lovely tribute there by that's liking nice. That's liking nice. Steve Norman's tweet. There we go. Well, it's good to see how 90s football reacted. Right. Shall we get back to the 90s uh, with the electronic post bag? We, we always like a mistakenly... Uh, I, think that, I think this is a strange hill, is it? I think this qualifies as... This is Randy Sims. Hi, lads. As a big Chelsea fan who was born in 91, I have a real love for tall Andre Flo. Growing up, he was one of my absolute heroes, and I thought he was one of the best strikers in the world. My g- biggest gripe with him playing was the incessant need for commentators to constantly reference his height during the game. Every week, when he received the ball, I would get increasingly angry that they would always refer to tall Andre Flo. <laughs> yes, I was convinced his name was Andre Flo. And various commentators and pundits felt his height was so astounding they needed to reference it each time he was in possession. Just to emphasise this to viewers at home, I also wondered why it wasn't small Gianfranco Zola or average Gustavo Poirier. Needless to say, I uh, soon worked out his name was Tor and I managed to get away with his blunder before anyone cottoned on to my irritation. That's an easy one to make. I can't imagine Andy Sims uh, was the only person making that mistake. Can you? Yeah. <clears throat> Has there ever been another tour in football? Yeah, it's an easy mistake. That, of all the strange hills we've had, that's the one I've kind of most on board with. Yeah, I know yeah. you're fine with that. But also he comes around at a point when surely you've seen his name. Do you know what I mean? His name is written down. You, you must have read his name. But Andre, I think what's leading you straight there is Andre is a f- first name, isn't it? Andre Flo is a better name than Tor Andre Flo as well. Yeah. Andre Flo is a cool name. Yeah. Right. There's been a lot of emails that have um, had a go at Michael, or not had a go at Michael, but had a go at one of his heroes, Mark Hughes, Brian McClare, 
Dennis Irwin, Roberto Baggio. And I'd say you've gloried in this. Is that a fair, Skull? Oh, you're really loving it. Absolutely loving it. Simon Mustard writes, Hello, strikers with appalling records? Look no further than Paolo Di Canio. Yes, please. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. The only time he got into double figures in the Barclays Premiership was 16 goals in 99-2000, where he got just half over half the goals Kevin Phillips did. To add even more perspective, that's only two more than Chris Armstrong, Stephen Everson and Niall Quinn, and three fewer than Michael Bridges. Getting service from Joe Cole, Trevor Sinclair and Frank Lampard and you're squeaking past Niall Quinn, who's ostensibly a goalkeeper playing up front by mistake. What do you think, Skull? Um, I'm just looking at Roberto Baggio's goal record for reference. I'm just looking up the Ballon d'Or shortlist for reference as well. <laughs> Struggling to see his name on it. A goal scorer whose record at scoring goals is as bad as his record for voting politically. <laughs> I think the one thing I will say about Paolo Di Canio is he did bloom late in his career. Yeah, but when he was blooming late, he wasn't scoring more than 10 goals a season. That is interesting, isn't it? Because the goals he did score are absolutely incredible. World-class goals of a percentage of overall goals. I don't think there's anyone better. Yeah, but his, his overall record, including to Wikipedia, is 126 goals in 534 games. For a forward, that is not good enough. That, do you know what this reminds me of? It's like saying... Oh, Forty Towers wasn't very good. They only made two series. What do you mean? Well, no. It, it's the quality. It's the quality of what those goals were. Do you know what I mean? It's not the. I don't want quantity. We are sitting here telling me. No, no, no. But the, the the point of television isn't to make the most episodes. Like the point of football is to score more goals. I can, you can sit here and tell me all day that Andy Goal scored a, like a fifty odd tappings. I don't care. You know, there's how many episodes of Mrs. Brown Boys are there? Such, such a creaking analogy. Yeah, but it's a different world <laughs> because the point of TV isn't who can produce the most episodes. The best no, TV program isn't tipping point. Like the point is that football is about who scores the most goals, and you've got a striker who you're carrying in the hope that he scores a really impressive goal one every five games yeah and here's and here's the here's the thing those goals all count for the same that spectacular volley he scores doesn't count as 10 goals in comparison to a shit topo oh it counts in the court of public opinion and in history and memory of great artistic creations just because fast and furious is now on eight films or whatever it doesn't make them a better film it's the quality, isn't it? That's the thing you live for, especially in a nostalgic sense. I couldn't tell you any of Andy Cole's tap-ins from Six Yards. They don't really stick in my mind. But the, the painting that Di Canio painted on the canvas of football history will be remembered forever. Well, I can tell you what I remember about Andy Cole's goals. The multitude of them is the games that they won and the titles and trophies that they won by him scoring them. Look, if you want to talk about trophy wins, mate, go research who won one third of the 1999 into Toto Cup. And there you will find your answer. <laughs> well, there we go. Did you know about Peter Shilton uh, appeared twice on Noel's House Party? No. Are you aware of this? Well, we've had two separate emails. One which had footage of Pete, Peter Shilton being beaten in goal by one of those things that fires footballs at you. Uh, someone on the phone shouting shoot when it was aimed God, in the right that direction. that really rings a bell. I think I, I remember that. So that was in 1998. Fair enough. But this one annoys me as a Plymouth fan. This is from Nicholas Charlton. As a young Plymouth Argyle fan scouring the Radio Times TV schedule one Saturday night, I was particularly excited to see our then-manager, Peter Shilton, 
was listed as being one of Noel's guests on that evening's house party. So thrilled by this appearance, it's etched in my mind. I distinctly remember we were playing at three o'clock away at Leighton Orient. So Shilton must have packed his team off on the bus to Devon and hot-footed across to the television studio to grab a grand. (laughs) (laughs) I can't find any footage of this event, and I do remember it being distinctly underwhelming considering my own excited anticipation. You you think that would be the perfect person for grab a grand, like a a high-level goalkeeper? I don't think you could find a better someone better placed. No, no, no. I tell you why he's not a perfect person because he's employed as a football manager. That's why he shouldn't be grabbing a grand. Could you imagine Alex Ferguson grabbing a grand after a Manchester United game away at QPR? So this was February the thirteenth, nineteen ninety-three. I haven't actually checked this. Let's check the score. Um, just while you're doing that, let's say, can we have a quick think about the managers who would definitely be seen grabbing a grand in 93? Terry Venables. Terry Venables. No, Terry Venables is too big a deal. Do you think? Glenn yeah. Hoddle, no. Graham Taylor, uh, no. Maybe Ron Atkinson? Big Ron, yes, definitely. Brian Little, no. So Plymouth had just lost 2-0 at Leighton Orient. That's not acceptable. <laughs> in London. In London. In L- yeah, in London. So he's used... He's, he's, He's but from East London, it. he's got to go past TV Centre on the way home. He's going from East to West. He's popping in. Do you think he's got out of the bus? Or do you think he's made his own way? Yeah, I think they're waiting. I think the coach is waiting in the car park at TV Centre. Are the players aware of it as well? Yeah. When you're sat and he's bollocking you because you've lost 2-0 at Leighton Orient in front of 5,804 people, do you think they're thinking, yeah, but in a minute... You're going on TV with Mr. Blobby. <laughs> <laughs> there is absolutely... I can't think of a single modern manager who would do that. After a defeat. After a defeat. Anton Deck Saturday night takeaway. Like, no, <laughs> it's not happening. Do you, do you think the fee is greater than a grand to grab a grand? I think it probably was. Yeah, yeah I think it almost it. certainly was. It was like the kind of crystal dome, but smaller, wasn't it? Basically, grab a grand. Yeah, it was like a gunge tank, but with cash flying around. That's how yeah. I remember it. Um, if anyone's got a clip of that... Please send it over. He obviously did well enough that he was rebooked three years later to uh, try and save some penalties in a Christmas episode that is baffling, uh, as I watched a clip of it. But thank you very much. If you've got any reason to get in touch with us, this is how. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Right. Yes, this is the Jeff Norcott episode. And if you want the extended ad-free version of this episode, plus get access to next week's episode as well, join the Quickly Kevin fan club. It's over at anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. And if you sign up and listen over there, you can also get chapter one of Steve Bruce's Striker with Ivo Graham. And if you join the Quickly Kevin fan club, you get all of the bonus episodes we've ever done, which is the whole of Striker. We're most of the way through Sweeper 2. And this month's special is Own Goals and Gaffs, watch along of the classic Danny Baker video that's all for you over on anotherslice.com forward slash quickly Kevin do join the fan club right this is genuinely one of the great eras of the great clubs of 90s football discussed by a man who was there Jeff Norcott on Wimbledon
Our guest this week is a comedian, political commentator and a former programme seller. Raised in Wimbledon, he went to school in Merton Park but really grew up on the terraces of Plough Lane, watching the Dons ascend to fairy tale glory throughout the 80s and 90s. It's our pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, Wimbledon fan, Jeff Norcott. Hello, it's good to be on the show. I mean, I, I'm, would I be the first Wimbledon fan? I mean, it's statistically well, likely. Does Dave Besson count? I, well, I mean, I, he sort of he's a legend. You never know whether they were fans, but <laughs> but you know, when Dave went up to lift the FA Cup, I was there. You were there. Well, we will definitely oh, come to that. Um, but firstly, we do need to touch on the fact you're a program seller at Wimbledon. Mm. How, what's that like as a job? Well, it was it was in the late eighties, and then the Wimbledon uh, Administrative Nerve Centre was a big shed. <laughs> Uh, it really was a wooden built sort of offices just back from the, the main stand and even main stand is probably overselling it. But uh, and, and out of the back of it, there was a, there was just a little office, a guy called Terry, who used to uh, of who, who sort of uh, like sort of wrangle all the young program sellers. And it was so kind of haphazard. I just sort of said, I, I want to sell programs because you get a free sort of staff pass. And then they said, fine. And they just gave me this little cardboard thing, this little neon thing. And I wrote my own name on it. And you could get loads of mates in for free and and everyone else used to do the the good spots were outside the ground because that tended to be where people bought programs but i did the running track on the inside where you didn't sell any programs but you were allowed to keep walking around it till half time so whenever there was a corner or a free kick or a penalty i just sprinted up to wherever the action was oh wow so you were for the first half you were kind of walking the perimeter of the pitch Basically, yeah, I saw some incredible punch-ups. You know, one of the things being a Wimbledon fan is, is our fans were certainly at that time very tame, but we loved violence above all else. <laughs> and and I saw I saw Dennis Wise versus Mark Hughes at a very sort of short distance from me, and it was oh, uh, wow, it was a vigorous encounter. Yeah. Um, and, and and it was funny because I used to get like stick off the away fans. I mean, Chelsea fans, I have to say, were the worst. They they would often just do those really poor practical jokes where they go, hey, mate, mate, get up over here. I want I want 15 programmes. So you'd have to go through the rigmarole of going up to wherever this geezer was. And then he'd go, no, shut up. No, I don't. Look, there was absolutely no finesse. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'd, they'd all go, well, yeah, well done, Dave. I go, come, come. Look, look, I know Dave's your mate and he's the alpha, but that wasn't very skilled. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. 
but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So did you, were you shouting get your programs or yeah. programs or whatever? What was your, yeah. what was your um, shtick? Uh, yeah, just just mainly holding programs in my hand and sort of uh, <laughs> saying get your programs. You know, I've perfected it over the years. I mean, it's funny because I I the first bit of my life was relatively middle class. You know, before my parents got divorced, and then I was doing things like this. I also worked at Wimbledon uh, Market as a fruit and veg seller briefly. So yeah. I, 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 it wasn't very convincing when I did stuff like this. It was a bit limp. <laughs> <laughs> And but I, I learned, you know, obviously years of doing it, it did sort of change and my voice changed. But, but yeah. in the first instance, I, I wasn't very convincing. I mean, I mean but what, what I was able to do was just, um, you know, blag, blag people into the games and, and, and stuff. And I remember one game against Chelsea, again, Chelsea, of course. Um, I got my mum into the ground and then uh, we beat them 2-1. And at the end, we just walked across the pitch to get to, get to the exit. And there was uh, there were so many coins that had been thrown from the Chelsea fans at Hans Seegers. And my mum was like, well, we're not going to pass this up. And we just started um, picking up the coins. And, <laughs> and uh, I think I think we come out of there, we beat them 2-1 and we came home with about 26 quid. That's and pretty good. Well, that's good. Did, you ha- did you have one of those like tabard bum bag things that fruit and veg sellers have? And programme sellers. It's just programme sellers and, and fruit and veg people who have those things. Mark you know Fowler is, is the yeah, ultimate. I, do you know the truth is, I, I guess I must have. But I, I don't, I, I don't specifically uh, recall it. And, and and the other the other point is is that I made so little money that I actually, I could probably have just kept it in my hands. It, it really wasn't. All, all the other all the other lads thought I was an idiot for doing the, uh, the, the the running track. But it really was for me. It was just about a way of um, getting closer to the action. And and the one thing about being a Wimbledon fan at that time and, and going to games at Plough Lane was you could get so close to the action in every respect. I mean, like the yeah. level of access to players and stuff. I mean, they had, a, they, had this, they had this nightclub called Nelson's, which was built into the main stand. And so if you just hung around afterwards, you know, we used to sometimes go, I used to go back to the council state I lived on and then we'd just come back down later and we'd just go on the pitch and have a kickabout on the pitch. Oh, nice. And then and then I remember once, like, several of the first team players just emerged from the tunnel naked. Uh, they'd been drinking. <laughs> I can't, you know, for legal reasons, I can't say exactly if, if they were all definitely naked. But yeah, yeah. I just remember, like, us, I mean, like, we shouldn't have been there doing what we were doing. They definitely shouldn't have been doing what they were doing. And, um, and yeah, it, it was such, there was such proximity then. And, and you know, like, I, I've become a bit of an old fart with football, you know, about how the premiership is. But, but I sort of, my fandom was forged in the fires of the ultimate yeah. kind of, like, like, close relationship with the club. So would you say, like, supporting Wimbledon in the 80s and 90s, that's like 
the maddest period to support any club that I can think of in terms of just sheer kind of overachievement and character mm. and just kind of... It felt very normal to me in the 90s because I was just... That's what Wimbledon were. But it yeah. it's an incredible story when you think about it. What is odd, Josh, is that at the time it wasn't appreciated at all. And I don't know if it was something to do with the kind of Thatcherite politics, but the fact that we were little and we'd done well, people actually didn't like that. I remember, you know, when we won the FA Cup, the following season, we got to the quarterfinal again, which a lot of people forget. And there was a car and we got beat by Everton. And there was a cartoon in the Daily Mail saying, Thank God Wimbledon have finally been knocked out of the FA Cup. And I just thought. It was. We we were despised because you know there used to be headlines about how few fans that we would get at home games. And our, you know, some of but our tendencies. You're not a Thatcherite dream for the Daily Mail in that situation. <laughs> you, well, you know, you're you're self-made man. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, look, we grow up. You know, our politics change, and uh, I kind of see where the mail were coming from. But <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, it, it was it was odd. I mean, now the the story has a lot of romance and a lot of buy-in, but it really wasn't that way at the time. And, 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 you know, part of it probably was steered by some of the players that we had. I mean, like, you know, John Fashionu was... I mean, Vinnie Jones was a dirty bastard, but John Fashionu was violent. <laughs> yeah. I think that there was there was a difference. And and I think that, you know, certainly there were things like the Gary Mabbott thing and yeah. and our disciplinary record, which, um, which, which you know, counted against us. But people often say, oh, these stories get, get um, gilded over time. But I, I remember, you know, going to school in the area and, you know, some of the players would come to, like, do coaching sessions but they were just like still pissed <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember who it was I, I can't remember which players came to my place but a mate of mine is adamant that alan cork and andy fawn just turned it turned up one day absolutely rotten <laughs> and just you know barely shaved just reluctantly kicking a ball about and and so you had this this closeness i remember once i was um I was, I was finished the program selling shift and I walked past Nelson's nightclub and uh, Vinnie Jones was playing darts. And when I say playing darts, I mean, he was standing double the length of the hockey away and like chucking spears, right? <laughs> and he just, just angrily chucking spears. I think we'd won as well. So I don't know what he's angry about, but um, he, and then he, as I walked past, he looked at me and, and he just threw a dart in my general direction. <gasps> no. Which skidded on the concrete. And he said, do you want to play darts? And I still regret to this day. I went, no. You said no. <laughs> Oh, but it's terrifying. Yeah, of it's course. terrifying. I mean, yeah. he had this mad look in his eyes. What was it like when you're on the athletics? Because I've, you know, when you go to a football match and you get put down the, you know, you're a little way or something, so you, you don't get to choose where you are, and you're like from the kind of visceral physicality of it only really comes across when you're that close. But mm. to have seen Wimbledon in the eighties and nineties from the touchline must be the most extreme version of that. Yeah, I mean, you did see it in some of the the away teams' faces when they came out. You know, like you? people like Ian Rush and a lot of the Liverpool players. You know, the you, you could just you could just sense the, the 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 culture shock because it looked, to all intents and purposes, like um, a, a non-league ground. I think I think the playing surface was always actually quite good, and that was the one thing that perhaps brought it back a touch. But um, but yeah, they they it was all. You know, I suppose back then, you know, the culture of top flight players, you would have had some kind of sort of fancy dance and stuff, but you'd have had a lot of players that had actually played in the lower leagues as well. Yeah. I mean, if you would have that situation now, it'd absolutely blow their minds. But um, it, 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 it was, you know, I mean, you just used to hang around, talk to, to Bobby Gould and it can easily end up sounding very jumpers for goalposts. But, yeah. but it, 
It Don't was worry, that's what we're all about. Don't, that's, <laughs> that's, what, that's what we're in the market for. It was better in the old days. And and I, I think that, you know, with, with, with my son now, I, it's so important. I mean, he is, I mean, I say he's an AFC Wimbledon fan. I've just, you know, you can indoctrinate them at a certain age. At the moment, he likes AFC Wimbledon cricket and Star Wars. And, and I mean, it just, you can see how fascists do it, really, you know, once you've got kids. <laughs> It's, it's not hard, really. You're, you like this. You're all about that, all right? And if you uh, if you don't, you're a disappointment. So he, I mean, at the moment, he's, he's, uh, he's he really likes AFC Wimbledon. But one of the main reasons that I want him to be an AFC fan is because I just think that he'll have a he'll have a closer relationship to the club. You know, when for yeah. someone like me now, when you look at these 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 top flight clubs with these huge stadiums and and how often people are able to go or afford to go, it just, it just doesn't seem to mean a great deal. And that's not nostalgia it's just it is genuinely yeah. different now yeah so let's go back to the first time the first time you went how old were you and what because Wimbledon what a lot of people don't realise or forget is that they swiftly moved up through the leagues having been non-league in the late 70s yeah. they moved through three promotions in four years was it in the football league to- well we were yo-yo club for a while so we were going up and down um, and then but then I think we went like four three two and then one you know successive not in, not in successive years i don't think but but you know after we'd had a period of yo-yoing mm. but the, the ascent was was pretty sort of uh vertiginous and, and were you there for that uh yeah I, I mean i was a bit too young so i went to the occasional game i can remember like you know some third division games I remember a game i think the first game was against like bolton or something i think we won four or five two but i went to some games and then you know admittedly when you know when the when we got in the top flight and obviously with the cup final run, I was also, not only was I glory hunting, but, but I was also at an age where I could go as well. Yeah. I, was, I was, I was where I could go independently. So how old would you have been for the cup final? So that was, uh, yeah, I think I was 11 and a half, I think. Oh, oh, that uh, is ideal timing, isn't it? That is perfect timing. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, because that day at Wembley, there was like, I think there was 98,000 people and obviously Wembley holds quite a lot now, but there's something about, you know, the degree of it, which was terraced. I can still remember just walking into the the sort of gate that we were going in and just, just not having a way of making sense of what my eyes could really see uh, in terms yeah. of just the volume of people uh, in a place. Because compared to Wembley, what was Plough Lane? Describe Plough Lane when you first start going. How bad is it? That's one of the things is there's a lot of revisionism. So once we left Plough Lane, obviously, you know, mm. it was a very emotional thing and people um, idealised it. At the time, I remember people having real gripes about it. You know, it was, it was there was the, the, the West Bank, which was the home end, which unfortunately named, but yeah. um, that, that was, it was, a, it was a sort of lower to medium sized home terrace. It wasn't tiny, but the way, the way the roof on it was angled, it actually made it look smaller than it was. Um, the away end was actually quite big. Um, so we were always kind of like dwarfed by the bigger clubs. So the, the away end held quite a few. The main stand was a genuine sort of non-league looking stand. But the worst stand of all was the south stand, um, which would have been the one you wouldn't have seen because, you know, it's where the, the camera gantry was. And that was, I mean, proper like kind of allotment sheds type. type. It was, you know, it was really, it was really, I mean, I remember when they eventually demolished it. I think it took about, I think they had about half day on it. It wasn't, it wasn't a <laughs> It was ready to go. You know, it could be intimidating in its own way, but but I guess in a, in a weird way, similar to Kings Meadow, where we eventually played, it, it wasn't on. We weren't on top of the, the the players as much. And one thing about New Plough Lane is 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 very much on top. You know, mm. you do feel the input of the fans there, and 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 so we never. It was a long, long time where we played at stadiums, whether it was. 
Plough Lane or Selhurst Park or even Kings Meadow, where it didn't feel like we could really get on top of the opposition. But but, but Plough Lane, I mean, obviously we, last season we had a dreadful record there, but you certainly felt the force of of, of the fans and the, the, the stadium's been designed quite well in that respect. I've always been um, fascinated by Plough Lane because of the fact you kind of left it, but it's, it hung around for years. Yes. But when, when you actually did leave Plough Lane to go to Selhurst Park, what state was Plough Lane in at the time? Was it inevitable that you had to move out? Well, it, it, part of it is, is our former owner, Sam Haman. At the time, it felt like, well, because of the Taylor report, and if you wanted to be a premiership club, you know, there were there were rules that were mooted at the time, which still haven't been delivered on by a lot of clubs about, you know, minimum capacities. I think Sam Haman sort of saw, you know, the future and the way that he wanted to get out of the deal. Couldn't wait. You know, he tried to, tried to do other things before in terms of merging with Palace. Um, so the the, the, st- the stadium was still serviceable, and of course, like you say, there is that weird period that for several years afterwards there were reserve games there, and also I remember like two, two or three years afterwards there was an FA Cup youth game against Crystal Palace where they opened the whole ground. You know, um, it's one of those weird, mysterious things I'd love to see footage of because you just yeah. think, did that re- did that really happen? You know, we were back on the terraces. So you know, Sam Haman bought the club, and then he removed this covenant that allowed for its sale, you know, which the council right. should never have done. And, uh, and and his way of cashing in his chips was always going to be either merging or getting us out somewhere else or selling up. Um, but you, it was proved in the long run, that obviously it was eminently possible to build, you know, a stadium on Plough Lane. But part of the reason that eventually happened was because the narrative changed. You know, a lot of people, the council didn't give a toss about us back in the day, but it did become eventually a fashionable issue, a fashionable mm. cause. And that, you know, and that really was, was, was the politics of it. But, but the ground was, you know, it was lovable. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It was a it was, it was a lovable ground. And, um, and, you know, I think, you know, when you go to the new stadium, they have managed to capture like some of that. Plough Lane wasn't demolished until like 2002. And uh, mm. my fa- one of my favourite pictures on Wikipedia is if you go to the old Plough Lane uh, Wikipedia article, there's a picture of Plough Lane in 2000 with just a horse in the middle of the pitch like, looking at the person <laughs> taking a picture. I and, haven't uh, seen that. It's a great picture. Um, just because the horse is kind of like, feels like you've just caught him in a private moment. But did you ever go back, like up until, it's so mad that Plough Lane was still around in 2002. Did you ever go back to the old, like, ground, like, you mentioned there was that that game that they opened up the terraces, but you ever you must have walked past it at times. Yeah, I think a lot of blokes of a certain age would emotionally just walk around. The, it's really sad. I mean, even even when they rebuilt the housing on it, um, you know, the design of the flats that were eventually built there was sort of made to look a bit like a football ground in some respects. And so, you know, if I don't I don't, I don't live in Wimbledon anymore, but when I'd go back, I would sometimes have a wistful walk. And oh. and they they named um, some of the roads like after Wimbledon players. Like I think there's like oh. a Bassett Way and a, San- oh, San- a Sanchez Walk. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's really weird. Like, it was really weird with working class blokes in football. You know, you probably haven't really ever thought about your Nandai in your whole life, but then you're, you're standing walking around a, a council estate crying at road names. <laughs> the talking of Dave Harry Bassett. So, he was the manager that got you up from Division 4 to Division 1, or League 2 to the Premier League, as it's now called. Was he... An incredible manager. Because when my memory of Dave Bassett is from the 90s is a bit of a kind of industrial long ball merchant, a bit of a kind of, you know, a lower Premier League guy you'd get in if you're about to be relegated. But he genuinely was brilliant for you, right? He was very young as well. I mean, that was what what sort of gets missed is he was not long out of uh, play. I think there was a period where he was a player manager, if I'm not mistaken, as well. 
so he was very young, very dynamic, and and I used to love the way that he had of speaking, which was sort of like just one long sentence. You know, he's sort of like a kind of Swiftian level of commas. He would just keep talking. And of course, well, you know, the lads came out there and, well, you know, looking back on it and he's like, you'd just be trying to detect a full stop in there. <laughs> At some point, he would he would just keep talking. But he he also like, I mean, I don't know where Bassett grew up, to be honest, but but there's, there's a certain kind of South London geezer, like there's a way of communicating. And, and he felt very much like one of us. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and 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 he, they were, he had fostered, a real up and at it spirit, you know, and that, which is kind of characterised as a Wimbledon thing. And and the interesting thing you say about like long ball is I understand that, you know, every club has their kind of culture and a, a sort of preferred way of playing. But for me, the way that I was raised, I, I love long ball football. You know, do you? I really do. That's great. Yeah. When it's when it works, when it go when it doesn't work, it looks terrible because you're surrendering possession almost mm. all the time. But the bombardment element of it was hilarious. You know, we used to have, like, <laughs> we used to have, you see these like cultured football clubs like West Ham and Tottenham come down. And when we'd have all the, you know, everyone in our team more or less was six foot plus. And then, you know, it would just be straight away. Besson would just smack it up into the final third. Every free kick was going long. So when it worked well, it was an incredibly ta- attacking yeah. form of football. But what you'd also need is you would often need quite skillful wingers because when it broke down, you'd need somebody to pick up the pieces. And that's why, you know, where someone like Dennis Wise was uh, so successful for us. So, you know, when you see a Wimbledon team now and they're kind of spraying it about, everyone's going, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what is all this about? Just getting, we need a six foot four battering ram up front I mean we, we we had a player at the end of the 90s because I think it was we sort of jumped the shark in terms of massive forwards called John Gale who we signed from Burton Albion who was just freakish I mean I know like since then we've had Akin Fenwa who also yeah. you know played for Wimbledon but John Gale was that size and six foot seven it was ridiculous oh, wow. and was he good no you know he wasn't <laughs> we, we had a chance for him um for a while, we we had a record with, with our players of not having very complimentary chance. And the one for him was, you know, you say, "Oh, and it's Wimbledon, Wimbledon FC. We're by far the greatest team." Yeah. We used to sing, "He's John Gale, Johnny Gale. He's by far the worst player the world's ever seen." <laughs> and we always, and we used to get genuinely irked that he didn't acknowledge the fans. <laughs> Well, we had, we had another one about Alan Cork. We used to sing about him, Alan Cork, Alan Cork, Alan, Alan Cork. He's got no hair, but we don't care. Alan, Alan Cork. And I thought, <laughs> it's a really weird way to neg someone to bring up baldness and then yeah. say, but we don't care. Yeah, we're all right with it. <laughs> but you're bringing it up. Well, I, I, like it. I hadn't thought of it before. that they, they constantly talk about club DNA. Man United's got a club. But I, I think more than even Barcelona, you could say Wimbledon have a stronger club DNA for what tactics they play than any other club in history through the 80s and 90s. It was like, they were like the absolute defining thing of that tactics, weren't they? Well, we, we used to come and go. So every once in a while, like we had Ray Harford who came in and managed us in 91. And we just, you know, it, we happened to have quite a good squad at that time. So mm. we did get it down and, and play a bit more. We had people like Warren Barton and so on. And, and it, came and, it came and went. And then, you know, it got to the point when, when we were at Sellers, we, you know, we had Dean Holdsworth and John Fashionu, you know, both big centre forwards again. And then, and, you know, like Alan Kimball, you know, when it, we used to have some great left backs who could just yeah. ping it up the line. I used to love watching Alan Kimball just get it on his left foot, pull out the seven iron and then just, <laughs> you know, just, just put it into the, put it into the, the channels. And, and then that is, you know, one of the great things about being a Wimbledon fan is, is that it's a very definable thing 
that you yeah. can, you know, you know what it, you know what it means. I sometimes look at some clubs and you think they have a culture and there's some clubs I often wonder what is the culture there? You know, yeah. like, I don't know what, what does it mean to be a, a, a fan of, of, the, of that club? And, and, you know, and then with what happened with, uh, you know, the club trying to move, well, you know, a, a, a version of the club moving to Milton Keynes. It just took that and, and, and then took it to a completely different level. Yeah. yeah. Just just on the culture, do you ever miss... I mean, I remember that the Crazy Gang were known for pranks. I remember when you signed John Hartson and he turned up in a suit and while he was training, the, the first team took his suit out and burnt it in an oil drum. <laughs> like, do you, do you miss that kind of... that the way the culture's changed maybe in the, the modern kind of game where you, you don't get as much... you don't hear as many stories like that of the Wimbledon team? Yeah, I mean, I actually do a bit of stand-up in the current show about, like, people like Marcus Rashford. You know, the f- footballers becoming moralistic is obviously admirable, but I'm not going to read any of their autobiographies because there are no <laughs> salacious, titillating <laughs> anecdotes. You've got no Gaza wearing fake plastic tits. You know, there's none of that business. And, and, and they've become, you know, it's become very sort of sanitised. But, I mean, I would say about the Wimbledon initiation thing is pretty much everybody was subject to it. Only one player ever escaped it, apparently Mick Harford, because he was oh. obviously the hardest man that's ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, they came to him, and, and, and it, it, was, it was all it was all said with one look, you know, like he just emerged <laughs> from a cave in Sunderland. <laughs> Would you have stood a chance in that dressing room? No, absolutely not. I mean, that that's one of the, the odd things was there was at the time, certainly in the late eighties, early nineties, a lot of Wimbledon fans were quite eccentric. You know, at the moment, although we've got quite a lot of young fans who are a bit geezerish, and obviously, I guess the story of the club has, has radicalised yeah. them a little bit. Right. But back then, it was a very weird, eccentric group of people, you know, who'd bring their own little Marmite sandwiches to the game with them. And so, but, and, you know, I think they did a survey at the time that the Wimbledon fans were among the most highly educated in the country, you know. So you had this this, this kind of cerebral culture in the stands, but but like this violent culture on the pitch. <laughs> The only the only trouble there would ever have been at a Wimbledon game would have been the players. It would have been, if it had gone off properly, we would have probably been hiding behind them because we didn't really have like a, like I mean we had some geezers at the thing, but we didn't have like a, a firm. You know, it's quite a yeah. it was quite a family club. You know, at that time that must have been weird for the players, right? Because that really mm. they should have been playing. Wimbledon's fans should have been they should be Millwall, right? That's kind of yeah, what you're absolutely th- yeah. Was it what was the was there a good atmosphere at the like was it electric at the games or was it just quite sedate it's funny you say that because i would love to say that it it, it was but it, no, i don't know if there was a, a great atmosphere i mean certainly at plough lane uh midweek games was always great you know i remember a game yeah. against manchester united actually it was the one that um where fashion and viv, viv anderson had a punch up in the tunnel um and that the atmosphere of that game was 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 superb you know but but if the truth be told no that certainly when you compare it to now you know, like what happened to the club and, and the, the the increased level of investment that people had because of Milton Keynes. It doesn't compare. I mean, like, like we get we got a, a crowd the other night for a Carabao Cup game at home on a Tuesday against Gillingham, which was 3,000, which doesn't sound like that great. But I can mm. remember in 1990, we had a top flight game at home against Coventry, which was also 3,000, you know. That's, That's four, four divisions different. And and we take, like, so many fans away. Like, we're, quite often we'll be taking 1,000 fans to games up north. And, 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 and so, yeah, it doesn't really compare. The atmosphere is is a lot more uh, uh, passionate these days. But there would, there would be the odd game, I think. You know, even, even at Selhurst, where the fans... like some, I remember a League Cup run where just people really bought into it and, and it got quite uh, intense. But we were just always a bit... I don't know, we were always a bit dwarfed either by the away fans or, or by the empty seats around us. 
But one thing I've always noticed, like FA Cup final 1988, when you see, when you watch the highlights of that, the camera pans to the Wimbledon end and it is packed. Mm. Where did all those Wimbledon fans come from? Uh, well, a lot of them were Liverpool fans who lived in Wimbledon. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, all, my, all my mates from school, I mean, that is, you know, partly away. I, I would say that on the day, so there was 98,000 people there. I'd say that there was probably between fifteen and 18,000 who were supporting Wimbledon, you know. At that time, right. we probably had a base of fans that was around ten or 12,000. You know, you had a lot of people from South London, a lot of Chelsea and Millwall fans wanted to see Liverpool lose. So, you know, we had some casual fans, but that was, that was about it. And um, but in a way, that was what made it so sweet, because, you know, you're going up to the game with your mate from school who's, you know, a glory hunting Liverpool fan that's blagged a free ticket. And, and, and you know, and, and we upset the upset the odds. It was it was in, it was incredible. But, yeah, I remember, you know, looking around um, just how much red there was in our end. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't know that. But the strangest thing about that game, right, which I find really odd, is, is the greatest upset of all time, 1988. We finished seventh that year. We finished... <laughs> <laughs> We'd finished sixth the year before. Yeah. Well, I think we'd beaten Liverpool that season or so. We'd certainly beaten Liverpool the season before at Anfield, right? Yeah. I think we got a draw with them at Anfield that year. So, like, I know that Liverpool were, were a really good side that year, but we didn't, you know, they hadn't tested it in Europe, obviously, for, for various reasons. So we just didn't know how good they were. I think they'd beaten Nottingham Forest 5 0. So everyone's like, this is the greatest team that's ever played. And 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 so the level of the surprise was a surprise. But I think people that had followed Wimbledon that season, we, you know, we, we we sort of thought we had every chance of, of beating them. I mean, some good players in that team. Yeah. You know, players that went on, you know, Andy Fawn, Terry Phelan, you know, Fashionu, Vinnie Jones. You know, this wasn't like a, these there weren't mugs in this time. Dennis Wise. Dave Besson was in the England squad. Dave Besson, Eric Young, Eric Young, who you know had a good few years after that playing at top flight football. So there wasn't really many much in the way of uh, weak links there, um, and, and so yeah, well, it wasn't as much of a surprise to us. But uh, yeah, you know you, what, what you say about where did those fans go? I mean, going back to that point, it's a really good point because what was really odd was the the, the the two or three seasons after that, our average attendances went down, and I just I never <laughs> understand how we managed that. <laughs> We've seen the best bit now. I'm yeah, done. You, you've completed football. No need yeah, to come back. at the top. Did you buy the cup final song, We Are Wimbledon? Uh, yeah, well, that still gets um, that still gets played. It was it was a decent cup final song, that, actually. Yeah. Um, there was a B-side called We're the Dons from Wimbledon. A, a little bit more of a root, sort of... Uh, <laughs> Bread and butter cup final song, but we are Wimbledon. It was it's a good song. Yeah, they still they still often play when the when the players are, oh, are nice. coming out. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May fifth, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Mother's Day is around the corner. 
Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I've got a question about your kit, right? In 88, it's electric blue and it's like kind of neon yellow. And then as you go through the 90s, it's really dull. The colours get really dull. What, yes. for, what yeah. for you is the right Wimbledon kit? I think, you know, the sort of... My fandom was forged in the fires of the electric, you know, very bright blue. I mean, for you know, I don't know if it is just my own emotions, but to me, that cup final kit was very iconic. I don't know what it was about it. I, I, they changed the sponsor. I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but our sponsor all season was Truman Breweries. And then Sam Herman did some deal on cup final to get a few <laughs> extra quid. And we came out with Carlsberg on, on the front. So. Uh, um, but yeah, I think most, most Wimbledon fans, I mean, if you look this season, uh, uh, there was a period in the 90s where it almost became black, like almost yeah. jet black. Um, but yeah, yeah, royal blue and, and yellow. Uh, but weirdly, this season, our away kit is just slightly darker blue, which I think is an incredible move. It, it's, Plymouth, uh, it, Plymouth do green home it. and away. Plymouth do green, because no one else plays in green, so we'll just have green with a lot more white as our away kit. If it which, ain't broke, yeah. it ain't broke. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a lot of affection for... Because Bobby Gould had become manager by then, and obviously mm. Bobby Gould's a slightly kind of... I mean, we're a big fan of him, but he's a slightly maligned figure because he became a bit of a kind of comedy figure in his time at Wales but do you have a lot of affection for him as a Wimbledon fan? Yeah I mean he was great because after Bassett you're going well what you know it's almost like well what do you do do you, do you try and have a continuity of the, of the the sort of like the eccentricness and the maverick nature or do you get in some kind of like boring manager and and then Bobby Gould was it felt like he was in the Wimbledon tradition and and you know he, he inherited a very characterful group of players but but he managed them he managed to to sort of like assert himself with them and he was so nice man like I remember like he one of those guys always got time to speak to the fans and stuff like even you know I mean I remember once several times would be at reserve games and I'd see him leave and I'd just sprint out afterwards and just ask him some fucking you know absolutely <laughs> stupid question Bobby, what, Bobby what's it like to to win the FA Cup you know just just because I wanted to talk to him and even though he probably wanted to get in his car and drive off to Swindon or wherever he was living at that time, he, he would just, you know, he would talk to me like I was, a, you know, a football reporter. So he was, um, he, yeah, he, he was a very good manager to follow on from Bassett. But weirdly, you know, the manager after that, Harford, was absolutely the absolute antithesis of both of them and got yeah. us playing football and, you know, didn't you know to- tolerate any nonsense. I guess the first manager that we had that really was, didn't feel in the Wimbledon tradition and didn't work was in the early 90s, Peter With. And he was like, right, you all got to shave. None of these initiation pranks. And, 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 it, and it didn't work. And then he was like, Joe Kinnear, there you go. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> well, I mean, the biggest character that oversees the whole thing is, and you've mentioned him already, but he's a fascinating figure, Sam Hamam. Do you like him? Do you have affection for him? What's the feeling towards Sam Hamam? Uh, they, well, there's a lot of antipathy for how he managed the club at the end. It doesn't change the fact that, you know, he, he was good at creating a public face for the club. But the press wanted to talk to him, right? Mm. You know, he was part of the reason that Wimbledon have a character now. It's weird with her, man, because, you know, obviously the legacy of what he did was, was hard to stomach, but he was still the guy that was there during... Uh, the good years. And if you look at how he managed the playing budget and the playing staff, like, did you know, he, he was part of a very good job that was done there, you know, sourcing talent from the lower leagues, 
you know, buy them cheap, sell them on. And, and we, for years, we were able to keep that going. I mean, you look at like, there was periods where we sort of like a feeder club for Tottenham, where they would just mm. continually pay over the odds for, for players <laughs> you know, to seem falling over themselves to give us 7 million quid for a left back. And then we'd go and, you know, pick one up from uh, Shrewsbury or something. And, and, and the club were able to survive because of that. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a very mixed heritage, uh, a very mixed legacy rather. Uh, with Sam Haman, but you know he, the way you know if you look at what then happened with him and Cardiff, you know he, he he's. Uh, if you were a fan of a football club and he got involved now, you'd have a lot of reasons to feel anxious. How did he make his money initially? What was his thing? Well, he bought the club, I think, for uh, I, oh, you mean like his original money? I yeah. don't know to be honest. It was always he was always just called Lebanese businessman. <laughs> 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 we sound like you know just a really root one character in a movie treatment it? Yeah. Like Lebanese businessman <laughs> Sam Haman but he used to walk around like I remember he used to walk around like the, the, the terrace and you know just chat to the fans or we'd have a you know particularly meagre away following or something and he just he just even our even a, 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 a Stanley Reid our actual chairman Stanley Reid even though it was more of a cosmetic sort of position he, he would do the same you know they'd just come out of the away game and just walk up and just sort of shrug and go what's going on there you know it's a, you know so, so whatever legacy Sam Herman left he was very Wimbledon in, in a cultural sense of the word what were the other kind of maddest things he did because it seemed like there was in a way it was it must be very exciting to have him as your chairman it was exciting there was something with an elephant which which is triggering in my mind I can't remember I think it was we were playing United last game of the season and uh, he said that he wanted to bring a good luck elephant down to uh, or, or, or something. He was constantly making bets with the players, like you know, fast oh, yeah. twenty goals in a season. He give him a car, you know, like so. There, there, there was he was he was absolute PR genius. You know, I'm at the Edinburgh oh my Festival. God, I'm just at looking at a picture of an elephant in Selhurst Park. So that all right, that were good. That wasn't some that weird is madness. He's just walking yeah. an elephant around Selhurst Park. Against Nottingham Forest. Can't remember what the reason was for the uh, the elephant being there, but you know that was part of the culture of the club at the time. I remember that they, uh, you know, they would have the the club also, you, you know, the, the the stereo in the dressing room thing, which was kind of yeah. like a, Wim, a Wimbledon thing uh, as well. But that that kind of ran ran through it, you know, and it was it, you could see sometimes actually that teams were intimidated. They'd never admit it because it's not a very yeah. manly thing to admit. But that day on the cup final, you know, the Liverpool lads all make out now. It's like, no, it was nothing to do with being psyched out. I'm sorry, like even as an eleven year old, you could see there was a Liverpool weren't playing as themselves, you know, and when Vinnie Jones, you know, stuck one on Steve McMahon very early on. It, oh God, I really miss that, by the way. Like, you know, the two midfield violent players just yeah. waiting for them to try and break each other's legs in the first yeah. five minutes. So exciting. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many kind of characters from that time. So just run through them with some quick thoughts. Vinnie Jones, presumably, you loved. Yeah, I mean, I, he was actually like, I mean, I know this is sound like one of these contrarian things, but he was a better footballer than given credit for. He wasn't wasn't very mobile, but actually if he got it on the deck, you know, he, he scored some good goals and he could spray it about a bit. And and you know, he was the only guy I remember like I think I think this might be on YouTube, but where he went after uh, Roy Keane and Roy Keane ran away. I mean, that was, I, I don't think I've ever seen Roy Keane. And Cantona didn't seem to know what to make of him either. Is he, was he a big, imposing figure, like, in the flat? Yeah. He was six foot and, and he was very well built, I think. And he just had a look in his eyes. Like, he did have a sort of a switch that he could he could throw. And, and you know, like, I think that I think that he often got put down as, as, a, as a fake hard man. But I, I, I think as an enforcer, 
Uh, he was an exciting player. Towards the end of his career, he sort of sat more in front of the back four and actually played some really good football from that yeah. uh, position. And, you, you know, you could see that he was, even he was aware that, geez, you know, these leg-breaking tackles would be more likely to be mine that gets broken now. So he, yeah. was, a, he was a bit less active. But, you know, a, a, a really, again, you know, yet another sort of talisman figure. And then there's Dennis Wise, who was obviously after... Wimbledon went on to. I don't. Did he play for England? Did many people play for England when they were at Wimbledon, or was it? Uh, like... Not really. I remember. I remember Fashionu did in a couple of uh, Rouse Cup games. I mean, think about Wise though, with with his legacy with the fans. He's such a little dig, right? He's so he, <laughs> he, he he played for us for years. You know, he basically carved out his career uh, at Wimbledon, and then he left us in the summer. Fair enough. You know, he'd done his done his years at Plough Lane. We got a million six for him. And so there's no Twitter then. No, no one had given him any grief. And we were playing Chelsea first game of the season. They got a penalty after 12 minutes. He scored it. And he just come up and just told us all to fuck off. Like out of what? nowhere. Yeah. And That's we were all like, mad. what? You know, like we sort of... <laughs> cla- <laughs> we clapped him onto the pitch. It's such a little wronging. You know, oh. he's one of those sort of, you know, in a way, maybe a bit like Martin Keown, where you go, you know, if he's on your side, brilliant. But it was, yeah. it was so... And then after that, he just... He, he was one player that actually never really sort of ever referred back to his time at Wimbledon. And maybe, you know, Chelsea was more of his natural home, but he just, you know, you know, a lot of uh, sort of former players came out to support the inception of AFC Wimbledon and stuff. And maybe I've missed something that he said, but yeah, he just, he never really seemed to engage with, with his time at the club. I hate that. I really hate it when players do that. Like they come through, they come through your ranks, and they go off and just forgotten about. I've got, I've just got one question. In researching this interview, and like Josh's naming some of the famous characters, we just talked about Sam Herman, mentioned Bobby Gould and Dave Bassett. Like, but where does the culture of Wimbledon come from? Did it come from an individual? Was it like Sam Herman buying the club in what was it seventy seven? Like, did he instill this kind of crazy gang thing, or was it more like the collection of these personalities? Like, how did it happen? Well, I think, you know, if you go further back, yeah, there was a group of players under Alan Batsford. You know, Wally Downs, you know, was, was uh, yeah. you know, one of the one of the originals. But, yeah, there were there were some faces, as it were. And then Bassett kind of came out of that and then became their manager. So it, it, it does go back a bit. And I, I, I guess, you know, like the sort of coming out of non-league. Because um, back then, you know, like there wasn't constant promotion and relegation. So you always remembered the clubs that have come out of non-league, right? Whether it was Scunthorpe or, mm. or, or, or Wimbledon. And um, and maybe that kind of governed it a bit. There was an upstart element to the club um, um, right from the start. And, and, you know, that only kind of crystallised further. And I think also the, the, the club tended to sign players that were a bit uppity as well, you know. People like, people like Brian Gale. I don't know if you remember when we played Watford in the FA Cup quarterfinal, uh, which we eventually won 2-1 with 10 men. Brian Gale just did an uppercut on Malcolm Allen in, in the first half. I mean, we're not talking... You know now when players sort of push each other in the face? I mean, we're talking like... You know, like those rugby union punch-ups? He yeah. just went up and just punched him in the face. And so we, we, had, we had a lot of players, you know that were, were aggressive on the pitch, but also good footballers. And I think, yeah. I suppose what happened was the club t- tended to recruit. But, but one interesting thing is, is that among all that, we always had nice guys too. And I always wonder what it must have been like for the people like John Scales to be in that. <laughs> <laughs> Clive Goodyear, speak to me. You know, what are Clive Goodyear, this weird sort of 19... 19- 30 Spitfire pilot that just happened to find himself playing with the greatest group of wrongins of all time. I mean, Kenny Cunningham played for the club for, for a long, long time. Most mild-mannered geezer you've ever met in your life. I think, you know, on, on a right back, you've got Kenny Cunningham. and a left back, you had Ben Thatcher. I mean, you couldn't like... So, so what we had all along was, you know, we had these real big characters and then you had... 
Um, in a way, you sort of more admire the mild-mannered men that yeah. just had to fit into that. John Scales being the most archetypal example. I mean, I think at one point, you know, you had Wimbledon players going down the the, the Greyhound track and, you know, drinking before the cup final. And you had John Scales, I think, was dating Britt Eklund. <laughs> <laughs> he was good-looking, though, John Scales, wasn't he? Yeah, Very great, head of, great head of hair. Great ahead of hair, very dashing. I mean, we had players that came in in the sort of mid-90s, so we started to get quite a few Norwegian players. I mean, Oivin Leonardsson came to mm. us first. And you could just tell that he was this cultured little man, you know. And and he, I wonder if the, if the culture of the club did start changing. But then, you know, in the late 90s, we had, you know, like you say, we signed... John Hartson, and that was after he'd kicked Ile Berkovic in the face. I mean, in many ways, that may well have been the job interview, effectively. That we've seen, yeah. we've gone. You know what? I think this this lad's uh, got, what, got it what it takes. <laughs> but there was a lot. Of, I mean, there was a lot of famous um, violence on the Wimbledon training pitches. But there's this there's this sort of mysterious punch up that once happened between Fashionu and Laurie Sanchez behind a hedge. You know, like with Apollo Creed and Rocky, where you never find out who won the second fight. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm gonna guess Fashionu, but yeah, uh... <laughs> guess. Did, with Fashionu, it's one of the most bizarre things that he hosted gladiators in the height of his Wimbledon fame. Yeah. I don't, I can't quite make head nor tail of why he was plucked from the seventh best team in England to <laughs> to be an ITV evening light entertainment host. What, what, right. What's your it's take like... on that? You're right, there's no real logic to it. I mean, <laughs> that that was probably part of the Hamam culture. He did push the players, actually, maybe a bit sort of ahead of his time to do stuff. I remember often the players would turn up on entertainment shows. I remember there was... A, oh, my God. You remember the show You Bet? Yeah, of course. Um, there was a, one of the challenges was a guy that had sort of set up a JCB uh, a vehicle so it could spin round, basically, and the digger bit could hit a ball and he reckoned he could beat any top-flight keeper. Of course, the top-flight keeper was Hans Seegers. So, <laughs> yeah, well, so I imagine that, the, the ITV money was very happy at Hans Seegers' house. Well, I mean, look, I mean, there's another, you know, there's another sort of passage in the club's history, which was... You know, like the the allegations of of uh, of bribes and stuff. I mean, one one thing I would say on that is is I used to write match reports for the Wimbledon Recorder, and yeah. there was one game against Sheffield United at home where we were one nil up, and Fash had already risen in our box and just done a fairly blatant handball, and they scored the penalty. And then last minute, he did the same thing again, and the ref didn't give the penalty. And I swear to God, I, as a, as I think a fifteen year old at the time, I wrote, "Was John Fashnu trying to throw away the points, the ball, or both?" Innocently, oh, little did I yeah, know. Yeah. Little did I know. And it, it's, it's really hard, that legacy, because when you look at certain things that Fash did, you look at certain goals that Seegers lets in. They were cleared, we though, to, weren't they? Were they they cleared? were cleared. They were cleared, but there was there was a couple of goals. You know, we used to call it, like, the, the fish dive. So Seegers would do these weird dives where he would just look like a fish because his arms would go in. So yeah. he wouldn't look like a human diving. So everyone would just find it odd. He was such a, a great shot stopper. And yeah. then occasionally he would let in these goals that were really quite close to his body. So look, he got cleared by a court of law, but certainly when those when those allegations were made, it, it, a lot of people, it seemed to, it, it seemed to make sense uh, initially, you know, and, but I mean, I think he, you know, carried on in football after that. I, I think it seemed to have more of an impact uh, on fashioning. On Hans Seegers, uh, one of our, we asked our Patreon listeners for what questions they'd want to ask you about Wimbledon in the 90s. Andrew Steen, this might not mean anything to you, but I'm fascinated. Did you own a Hans Seegers tie? Are you aware of this? No, no, but I remember we had some very strange merch. Oh, yeah. We didn't have, like, our merch operation wasn't really, 
it was just this tiny little club shop and they used to have these these weird things that they would sell. I remember one of the things that they'd sell, and people forget this when there wasn't that much football on television, was you could just buy the full 90-minute VHS of a recent game. It'd be really weird. Like, we beat Chelsea 5-2, no video. But the one all draw with Southampton at home, video. I, I bought them. I would sit and watch this, <laughs> the full 90 minutes of these tedious games. Um, yeah, they, you think it's odd to think now how haphazard uh, it was, but they used to have... I went to I went to a Greyhound night with the players. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, which is very, very low rent, as you'd imagine. Yeah. Uh, car, I think it was like a carvery and a photo. It was like eight quid all in. Amazing. <laughs> That's good. Do you, do you remember your kit manufacturer? Was your kit manufacturer just said the crazy gang? Like, so... Uh, we. Were you making your own kit? I think there was a period with that where we didn't have a sponsor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing how kind of amateurish we were well into the period where football <laughs> w- w- was highly, highly professional. I mean, it, it was, um, you know, the club now, the club do still have that, by the way, at, at Plough Lane. There is like, you know, like Cheers, where everybody knows your name and, and stuff. There, it has run through the club uh, like a stick of rock. I'm, I'm really glad that, that that's happened. I mean, the, the weird thing about the new stadium, though, which a lot of people can't get over, is the fact that we've got a lift in the main stand because we've never had a stadium that was where we had a stand big enough that we would need a lift. <laughs> so there's a lot of people just going in and out of the lift just for... Uh, just enjoying the... Uh, like my daughter would enjoy going in and out of a lift to enjoy it. But then you went to Sohurst Park. What mm. was that like, playing in someone else's ground? It's, that must have been a weird experience. Yeah, I mean, I was I was too young, really, to understand emotionally what we'd lost in terms of moving from Plough Lane. So I mm. was just like, okay, we're playing at a different stadium now. Um, and it was, you know, like there was, you know, for the bigger games, we could get in more more fans. But it was it was weird. It was really weird. And and you know, for the poorly attended games, you know, three thousand people at Plough Lane was one thing. You know, three thousand people in uh, twenty five thousand seat yeah. stadium. You know, the Arthur Waite stand with about six ball boys died around it. And and then there was a period where the again, like the Daily Mail and various tabloid presses used to just come and take photos of how few people were there. Going, is this the Premiership? Is this what we want? I don't really know what their argument was, but What's we, we should be. I don't know. Like we should be automatically relegated because no one liked us. But but then it got to the point where we actually asked our our, our our attendances started to creep up and then they would start taking photos bef- like half an hour before the game was starting going look just open the gates um, but you know what the weird thing that happened actually while we were at Plough Lane um, at Selhurst Park was that we did start to you know get fans from that kind of catchment area and, and if you look at the I think the the average attendance the last season we were there before obviously you know uh, sorry last season in the premiership you know, it crept up considerably, actually. And, um, and you know, obviously it's not something that you'd have wanted to happen, but I do wonder if that period there sometimes did extend our fan base because I think Palace were up and down then. You were and, better and, than and, Palace, weren't they? Weren't you? I, for most of the time there, for most of the time there, I remember there was a game against Palace. We were beating 4-0 live on the sky. And it's just, it's just one of those, that any, any football fan would not remember this, but for us, we <laughs> two years we dined out on that, you know. We, and we, and we and we it was really harsh on Palace because we were, were singing we beat the scum 4-0. They had no sense of a rivalry with us. All they've done is put us up as landlords and we were trying to manufacture, yeah, we hate the scum, but it was it was completely we didn't really have a natural rival for a long time because a lot of the clubs that we were trying to have rivalries with just sort of viewed us fondly, like, oh <laughs> bless. <laughs> that's that's see, that's what we do to Talkie United. And it's 
it's almost more... I, I suppose we... That's also a thing that England fans have a habit of doing towards Wales and Scotland fans, isn't it? Going, oh, no, I yeah. want you to do well in the Euros, which is <laughs> frustrates them even more. Well, you more, say you right? didn't have a rival, but be careful what you wish for. I mean... So the end of the 90s into the noughties, obviously. Mm. It's a horrendous time as a Wimbledon fan. When did it first kind of come on your radar, this idea of moving north? Uh, well, so the end of the season, there was the end of one season and, and the, um, it'd been mooted that, there, that this was going to happen and so the fans were starting to protest. And I remember Charles Koppel, the Norwegian chairman of the club at that time, he, he, he said he was going to make a statement after the game so the fans all stayed behind in the Homestow end. He came out, I mean, it was proper like Hollywood, Alan Rickman, bad guy stuff. He'd come out flanked by these security keezers <laughs> and walked the length of the pitch and just bare-faced said to us, uh, I know that there are these rumours about the club going to Milne Keynes. It's not going to happen. We're going to stay in South London. And everyone was like, yeah, hey. And we were like chanting his name, which was embarrassing to look back on. And then, uh, yeah, halfway through the next season, you, you know, there was they, they took it to this FA panel, just a three-person panel to decide on this, who twice decided that it you know, wasn't in the interest of football. And then the third time, we're like, yeah, Go on then. And it was based on some fairly shady accounting and numbers from the Norwegian owners at that time. And it was, it was really, you know, it was really, really shocking thing. You know, I think people yeah. even right up to the end just didn't think it was going to happen. But, you know, I, it happened at a time where maybe I was not as engaged with football as I had been. I was still going to plenty of games. But so, you know, fair play to all the fans at that time that really just, just within six weeks, was it? You know, just got together a football club and, you know, which was said to be not in the wider interests of football by the FA at the time. They genuinely said that. And, um, and yeah, but I think, you know, within six weeks, we played our first friendly at Gander Green Lane and there was like 4,000 people there. Oh, wow. Your attendances <laughs> have gone up from the early 90s. You're... Yeah, yeah, we got more, we got more for a friendly against Sutton. <laughs> Uh, than we did for a top-flight football match. But, but uh, you know, I, I can admit a lot of fans, you know, maybe wouldn't say this, but there was a time when it was emotionally difficult because the club was still playing under Wimbledon's name. They still had players that I'd been cheering. Not that I would ever support them, but it was just really emotionally odd. And and there was a strange kind of period where that was where that was happening, you know. And uh, and then, you know, the, the anger actually grew over time, I think, if anything. There was a long period... Yeah. Of shock. I mean, and you say, you know, with that other club, you know, rivals, it's, it's really strange because they call it sometimes a derby, but it's not, it's, uh, you know, I've played in roughly what could be called or, or watched roughly what could be called derby matches. It's not that, it's something else. Yeah. It's we don't we don't think they should exist. I mean that's yeah. fairly fundamental. It's not just oh wouldn't it be funny if they got relegated? You'd be just wouldn't it be funny if there was like a different <laughs> timeline where they never existed? I, I think I'd, I hate going to derbies at the best of times. Is it an unpleasant experience to go to those games? I'd, I'd struggle to go to that. I think it's horrible. I mean I remember like, also we've had pretty poor results against them, which feels pretty harsh but yeah. um, I remember the first time that we played them uh, in an FA Cup game and um, I think it was live on telly and I went with my yeah, wife. And we scored, so they were one new up and then we scored an equaliser with about 18 minutes oh. left. And the outpouring of emotion was like nothing. I mean, we eventually lost the game 2-1, but I still remember that feeling. I remember actually screaming so loud that my vision started to blur. And I, my wife was really shocked by how I was acting that day. And, and she just said, I think it's better if you come to these games alone. <laughs> and, and I noticed a second ago you said that other club and I know like yeah. when, when, when we wouldn't play against them they don't have their name on the scoreboard they won't put it on the programme do you share that intensity you won't even say their name I think you know for me it's a little bit different now we've got our own stadium because what you have is look I mean I've got I will never have anything more than utter contempt for that club but <laughs> but it, it, it is uh, 
it, you know, we there is this sliding doors story now, and there's a story where we end up with our own stadium. And if you want to be, and it's a hard question to ask yourself as a Wimbledon fan, is is if 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 that doesn't happen, we, how long do we stay at Sellers Park? Do we eventually get our own club? Do we end up just building a club, a stadium with Palace or whatever? So it's a hard one. It's a hard one. But I think it is really important to keep the hatred up. <laughs> <laughs> I do think to feed it, you know, to radicalise younger fans, you know, and and but because so it just never happens again, you know. You, that is yeah. the problem is that you get some club that are like, you know, they suddenly come up with this business argument, the same as oh, we should play one game abroad, or we, you know, we should tour some of our Premier League games. It'll always come around this stuff, you know, yeah. European Super League games, and actually. You know, it's actually in the interest of football to resist these things. These people that just want to make a bit of extra money, they don't, they don't, they don't actually understand the impacts on the longer. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the weird thing you can't explain about English football is yeah, a lot of people, yeah, they do want to have a shitty mid mid-table game every once in a while. It, it yeah. doesn't mean anything if you're playing Bayern Munich and Barcelona every week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The, the one small positive of the MK Dons, apart from, as you say, actually AFC Wimbledon are a very good place, is that because the Wimbledon FC Wikipedia now just feels like a, a complete story, if that makes sense. Mm. So, yes, yeah. And Wimbledon in itself, you got relegated right at the end of the 90s. And mm. so it does feel like the almost perfect kind of, like Southampton or Coventry, they hung around. But of those like smaller clubs in the, at the birth of the Premier League, Wimbledon like got out just as it was taking off. Do you know what I mean? Like just as everything was going mental. Well, we, I mean, it's funny, uh, you know, obviously it was a shame that we got relegated from League One in our first full season at Plough Lane. That was a, that was a hard pill to take. But, but there was one thing, I, I, League One, I love as a level, right? Mm. Because it's just, it's got enough big clubs there. It's got enough weird, you yeah. know, Fleetwoods and stuff like that. And there was a period, a couple of seasons ago in particular, where it was almost like a, a sort of a Friends Reunited for kind of like top flight clubs from yeah, the early Sunderland 90s. And... Sunderland, Ipswich, Portsmouth, Charlton, yeah. you know. I I love, I really love that. League One, is, I think, is a great level of football because it's just it's just in touch with both things. You know, mm. you get promoted, you're in the championship, you have some big clubs. I have to say, League Two, I've got to be honest, and no disrespect to, yeah, yeah, it's a bit rubbish. Like when, when I looked at the fixtures list come out and you're going, Barrow. <laughs> I didn't even know Harrogate. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like the, it was, and then, and you know, I say no disrespect to those clubs. Evidently, fair bit of disrespect to those clubs. <laughs> but it's just, it's just that level. And and the real, I think, the psychological problem with League Two is that you're in touch with dropping out of the league. That is a massive, yeah, anxiety. You know, especially when Wimbledon. You know, the AFC Wimbledon project was so much about getting back in the league. You know, I think a lot of Wimbledon fans could could tolerate a lot just if you were guaranteed that you were going to be in in the league. The only solace is that when we played. Uh, Milton Keynes was the, uh, they didn't beat us and and when you actually look at the maths by the end of it that was part of the reason they didn't get promoted so you oh, know that's good you take that's, what you can this though the end of the 90s brings up another patron question from Sean Wright who says why did it not work out at Wimbledon with Egil Olsen who did a good mm. job at France 98 with Norway Egil Olsen was an incredibly kind of 
in a way, he, he seems on paper a brilliantly Wimbledon figure, a kind of eccentric long ball merchant. He seems perfectly yeah. made for the club. No, we were all very excited about him, you know, and he, he had uh, he come with his Wellington boots, didn't he? And he, yeah. he had a weird nickname, Drillo. And I remember we won the first oh, game yeah. of the what season. What was Drillo? I can't remember, to be honest. It's his grime name. <laughs> you know, we had a, we had a good good squad that season. We had like Marcus Gale, Jason Yule, Carl Court, Neil Sullivan. You know what I mean? Kenny Cunningham. We had uh, Trond Anderson. Brilliant. Totally a, a missed great. He was a really great player. Trond Anderson, centre midfielder. And it, it was still hard to work out how it went so bad, so badly wrong. Um, I, I think that, like you say, he wasn't eccentric. He seemed to be a Wimbledon-type player. What he did have was the zonal marking system, um, which was a weird thing, and I don't know if everybody was ready for it. And so at corners, you just go, uh, anyone going to mark anybody? <laughs> just, 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 uh, you're standing there, and Duncan Ferguson is standing right there. He stays very tall, good at heading footballs into goals. Um, so, but, but the truth was, we didn't lose that many games that season, but we just got, we just couldn't win after a point and it became a sort of tailspin. And we, of course, we had the, the sort of full storm. There was a, I don't know if you remember, there was a penultimate game of the season against Aston Villa right. uh, where Hartson scored like in injury time. It was two all. That put us out of the relegation zone. Bradford had to play Liverpool at home. We were away at Southampton. All we had to do was improve on their result, but, you know, we just. Oh. Something had gone out of the, out of the side. It was a very unwimbledon like performance, and uh, and you know either with the sad thing about that relegation, I suppose, was the sense that with the club's resources, you, you, it was hard to see us getting back. You yeah. know, we still had a decent squad the next season, but I think we finished seventh, and and uh, you know it was it was hard to see how we'd get back in the Premier League. Do you think if you'd stayed up that season, is there a world in which Wimbledon FC are a current Premier League team? I know it's a massive like, but or did it feel like this is just inevitable? Like at some point, this story is going to end. What happened was we were. I mean, I don't know if you remember, we had like a really good run, yeah, and and part of the reason the Norwegians got involved was they thought they could take us to the Champions League, and <laughs> and the signing of Hartson, which I think was a British transfer record at that time, seven and a half million, was us like we're going to do it, we're going for it, going for the big time, and and it, it wasn't a very Wimbledon thing to do in a way, like you know Hartson, a very Wimbledon player, we loved him, you know, he's a very aggressive and and physical player, but there was something about how the club were operating that was very different to what had gone before. And and but it still you know it still irks me that that squad that squad was easily good enough to have stayed up. Yeah. Um, you know maybe some of the luck that we kind of cashed in over the years came back, but but I guess you know the way football went maybe not for the next five years, but certainly you know in in the noughties and certainly the late noughties what started started to happen it really did seem to start sorting out the men from the boys um, financially, and it, it would yeah. have been it would have been tricky for us. But you know I, I, I suppose what is true is whenever it got choppy, I think that what happened would have been on the cards because we didn't have our own stadium and because our fan base was was essentially limited. Do you still dream of being in the pre- when you're watching AFC Wimbledon? Because when I'm watching Plymouth, mm. my overall aim is I one day want to see Plymouth in the Premier League just for one year. That's all I yeah. want, and it's. It's eminently feasible in the way that other teams like Brentford. So do you dream of AFC Wimbledon one day being in the Premier League again? You know, I don't. I don't. And I think maybe I'm lucky in a way that I've, I've gone on that journey, you know, and younger fans mm. might feel differently. I, I just, I, I, I really can't characterise how much I dislike top flight football. I, I really think it's, it's such an awful sort of... Uh, 
set up. It's, it's a drug, isn't it? And people are addicted and then European Super League things happen and, and people agitate, you know, certain big clubs every once in a while when they're losing games, you know, they, they come out against the owners, but that's all quickly forgotten. I, I don't, I don't because, I, 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 you know, in a weird way, if you'd have guaranteed me League One forever, I would have taken it. I mean, a bit of weird offer. <laughs> <laughs> Strange genie that's coming out and saying... I'd like to be in League One forever. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I I don't know. You know the championship. I, I suppose Wimbledon fans are are suspicious of 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 like uh, su- not success, but like a certain level of success. I mean, for the younger fans, yeah, of course, it'd be great for them to like you know to to go yeah. to all the big clubs and and do that. But I think that what happened to us, without sounding too trite, is that you ended up realizing that the really important thing was that the football club continued to exist. And I know it's an old fashioned word, a football club, right? That's really the most important thing about it as an entity is that it's there. It's a place you can go, you can watch the game, you can have a pint, you can see people, and 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 that that so that is why I don't see uh, getting in the Premiership as like a, a, a yeah. an important thing to me. Well, well, if you had to say, where would the natural position be for Wimbledon in the leagues? I think that sort of lower mid League One, given off, I think our fan base is is pretty decent relatively but our, our, our playing budget is, is really low so lower lower echelons of league one for now uh and but the problem was was we spent like five seasons there and we were struggling all the time i mean that was the only thing about going down was you thought we might just start winning games it's been yeah. a struggle for quite a while we've had a lot of great escapes at league one level and you know if it wasn't for the financial element you say well maybe you know a, a, a season or a few at league two level might not be the worst thing in the world but you know it's uh, as we already find out. It's a pretty competitive, <laughs> pretty competitive league. Uh, um, but yeah, I, I suppose that that is really where our resources um, would would put us. I've noted down a couple of questions I just wanted to ask before we wrap up. First, did the digger score past Hans Sagers? We never actually <laughs> touched on that. I think I, I think it's best of three. I think Sagers shaded it. I do. I do remember. Yeah, and I remember getting really psyched about him saving it. Like, <laughs> There wasn't that much football on then, Josh. Do you know what I mean? It was midweek sports special and (laughs) match of the day. You know, it was good content. Yeah. Do you think if Wimbledon 1990 or whatever, 88, if today's Man City went there and had to face up to that, do you think played in the 1980s rules, do you think Wimbledon would do them? Just through sheer intimidation? I think we'd have a very good chance because often we would be good when there was... You know, the the old party pooper thing was was overdone in the end, and we lost plenty of games to to big clubs. But there was certainly a period where, if if a club was pushing for a title or something, you know, they'd often look in the, the fixture list and say, "When are we playing Wimbledon?" You know, like the eternal yeah. banana skin, yeah. and you know, like all reputations in football, you know, like United scoring two in the last minute uh, against Bayern Munich. Ten years later, you go, "This team's never beaten." You go, "Actually, they they have you know sort of like not scored in the last minute for quite quite a yeah. while." So, I think I think that period passed. But yeah, certainly in the late eighties with that team, because as I say, if you take aside the physical element, they were good players. It was a good side, and when we, you know, when we put when we put the reducers on big clubs, it was hard for them because it yeah. took them so incredibly out of their their comfort zone. And I, I would love to, I would love to see. I would, yeah, I would love to see the sort of Wimbledon dogs of war of the 80s against, you know. I mean, one thing I'd love to see, actually, is the, the team bus turning up at Plough Lane and all the <laughs> all the players getting out of massive headphones on and, you know, because 
Because I'll just tell you one story, actually, a funny story, yeah. because there was a lot of access um, at Plough Lane. And remember, we lost to Nottingham Forest once. And uh, we lost 3-1 and they scored two penalties. My mate Rob was absolutely apoplectic, thought Gary Crosby was a diver. And um, so we waited for the Nottingham Forest team to come out. And he was like, he was abusing all the Forest players, you know, and they were just kind of like squirreling away onto the coach. And then Brian Clough come out. And then what was he saying? What was that, young man? What was that? Come with me. Got him by the ear, right? And then we just saw this incredible thing evolve in front of us. Whereas a Brian Clough took our mate Rob Malin, put him <laughs> on the coach, right? And they were about two minutes past. And then he just kind of got off the coach looking absolutely pale. And <laughs> and what, what apparently Clough had done was he took him and stood him in front of Stuart Pearce. And he went, now that is Stuart Pearce there. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's pretty tasty. Do you want to stand there and tell him that you think he's a cheater? <laughs> And apparently wow. our mate Rob, under pressure, said, uh, I just want to say I've got nothing but respect for everything you do, I just, which obviously we taunted him uh, with him for years. Incredible. And, and, yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was funny, but that, you know, that was, that was a very sort of a, a, a plough lane moment, you know, seeing, seeing a sort of, a, a, you know, really, really, really famous people sort of emerging yeah. out, out of a giant shed. One <laughs> hugely famous moment, Wimbledon were the bystanders for, were you there when David Beckham scored from the halfway line? Yeah, I was. I was. Oh, wow. I remember. I remember. I was there. There was a weird period where loads of people scored great goals against us. Tony Yeboah almost broke the crossbar. Oh, was that Paolo you? Di Canio yeah. did the bloody karate kick. I mean, it was just a bit. Daly and Atkinson beat about seventeen oh, yeah. players, and that fan came on with an umbrella. Um, and and yeah, I, I remember against. So I remember I was sitting next to her because there's loads of United fans in the end. I was arguing with this United fan. And I remember seeing Beckham on the halfway line, and he sort of shaped up to do something, and I went, "No, it's not going to do much." So I went back to having a pop at this United fan, and. And he just went, yes! I thought, what? <laughs> like, I had to piece it together, what, what had happened. So you didn't even uh, see it? No, I did Well, I saw him go to strike the ball, but I thought he was just going to play a long ball. You yeah. know, having been a Wimbledon fan, I thought, yeah. oh, I can see what he's yeah, doing here. Great idea. Knock it, knock it long to the big lad, I see what you're doing. <laughs> and then I just saw sort of Sullivan with that weird kind of like fatalistic sort of way that he turned towards the goal. Um, so it's a weird thing. If you actually look at uh, like the best goals of a certain period, for some reason... Loads of them uh, uh, against uh, against Wimbledon. Were you there for the Yaboa one? I was there for the Yaboa one. That was that was that I was behind the goal one. for that. People ducked for that. I mean the Did way they? that he, yeah, I mean he just absolutely put his toe through it. Um, and but the thing was, we never got in the best goals. Like so many of our goals were like kind of just over the line. And just a melee of six foot blokes all just lying on top of each other, just <laughs> sort of like a rolling, rolling mall in rugby union, you know. So we, we, we was not only did we have great goals scored against us, most of our goals uh, were sort of obscured by a, a sort of mass of bodies. It's it's an incredible story. Have you got any more questions, Chris? Should we go to the classic final question that we? Yeah, let's go to the classic final question. So, Jeff, if I gave you the option to go back in time to the first of January, I'm going to say 1984 and do that whole period again from the terraces. Would you take? that option yeah i suppose you i mean you wish that you could take certain things in you know because you think that certain things will, will will be around forever you know i think that there was certain not not so much the cup final but some of the games in the run-up they were really great games you know and, and almost didn't know enough about football to know that you know like being at home against watford one nil down with 10 men and winning 2-1 you know again one nil down in the semi-final at white hart lane against luton you know, the team arriving in a minibus, you know, all that sort of stuff. It actually, at the time, didn't seem that weird to us. So, yeah. yes, I, I think, you know, who wouldn't want to just go, you know, just just to sort of be somehow physically present, just just to, just to 
just to feel that again. You know, like youth is wasted on the young. Do you think Wimbledon being really good is wasted on the young in that you didn't realise <laughs> realize how lucky you were? I think I think definitely on me. I mean, I remember there was a generation of fans that were a little bit older than me that absolutely knew what was going on was absolutely nuts. But I'm like, I was like, but come on, we finished sixth last season. We're a big club. <laughs> we should be winning cups. <laughs> It's been an absolute joy. It's such a great story. And um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing it, Jeff. Oh, no, no. It's been great fun to come on, man. Great to reminisce. Are you on tour? Yeah, I might be um, on the verge of announcing a new tour. But one thing I will have out is, is the book. And if, you, if you're up for a bit, a bit of Wimbledon nostalgia, I mean, obviously the book has a political dimension for it. But literally on the front sort of a fold-out page is a map of Wimbledon uh, in the 80s. It's very much steeped. Uh, in, in in growing up uh, around that time. So, yeah, the book is uh, available too. What's the book called? It's called Where Did I Go Right? Do buy that. Jeff, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me on. And there it is. The crazy gang have beaten the culture club. Wimbledon have destroyed Liverpool's dreams of the double. And all over the pitch... Their players are celebrating something which a few years ago would have been impossible. That was Jeff Norcott on Wimbledon. Thank you very much to Jeff. I absolutely loved that episode. So great, wasn't it? I, like, I, I wish I'd have gone to Plough Lane like before they've redone it. Like it's one of those grounds. It's so evocative, like those '90s. Like I love a ground like that where it's just a bit higgledy piggledy and like worn down, as like as it always was in the older uh, videos of it. Yeah, I would say Wimbledon, AFC Wimbledon. Uh, it's got everyone's second team, really, isn't it? Like, do you not feel like that that way? I do feel like there is an element of that. Yeah, I mean, we all hate MK Dons, don't we? <laughs> we all absolutely not? hate MK Dons. <laughs> Shall we end with a quiz? Let's do it. This is from Martin Kavanagh. Here's an end of episode quiz for you and something fellow Quickly Kevin fans will enjoy to pass the time on long car journeys. All conventional number plates end with three letters. When driving along, I like to challenge myself to see how long it takes me to turn those three letters into the name of a 90s footballer. The name has to have the letters in the correct order. Okay, great. So, for example, if the car reg plate ends S-A-W, I would shout in my head, Steve Agnew who has S, A and W in that order in his name. Yeah, it's a good game. Going to use images of footballers in their cars. Okay. From Harry Redknapp's article, My Life in Cars, in Top Gear magazine, the first number plate is from a Range Rover. E, E, M. It's actually very tough, isn't it? Peter Schmeichel. Yes! Slipping it. Very good. Very good. Ah. Oh, okay. I've got as far as Emil Heskim. We'll make it first to three because Michael's good at this. From the Aston Martin picture, A M L. A M L. Pass? No, uh, no, I can get there. Guys, we're going to have to pass it. Yeah. Okay. God, it's tough. It's tough. I, I, I had one there. Go on. Sam Shilton. Ah, um, uh, flipping egg. I was trying to think. Uh, you could have had Sam Allardyce for that one. Sam Allardyce, yeah. S-M-B for Brian. M for mother. T 
tough game, isn't it? It is tough. Shola Amiobi. Oh. Yes, 2-0. Okay, yeah, the next that's one. Good. S-Y-R. That's tough, isn't it? I think I'm bad at this game. But it does look that way, doesn't it? Yeah. S-Y-R is tough, though, isn't it? Yeah, Y is a difficult one. You need that at the end of the first name, really. You're not getting that at the start of the second name. Oh, name. Stephen Bywater. Oh, wow. Oh, Brilliant. lovely. Wow. It's too really nice. Okay, next one. P... N for Norman. E. P N E. Pavel Nedved. There we oh, go, he takes nice. it. Well done, Michael. Peter Whittingham was so close. How would you like to end the episode? That was a good game, I enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, enjoyed it, good. I guess in tribute to today's topic, I will pick the 1988 Wimbledon FA Cup song. Correct answer. Look forward to it. We'll see you next week. Until then, Stuart Slater. See you later. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.